taking your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We continue this morning in our reading through the Acts of the Apostles, authored by Luke, the same author as the gospel that bears his name. We come this morning to chapter 21. As we heard last Lord's Day, we have come to the end of Paul's missionary journeys, and we have now entered upon the season of his descent. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. The same descent is now evident in the life of a new covenant prophet and apostle, Paul. What happens in our reading this morning is the arrest of Paul the Apostle, and he will remain under arrest for the remainder of Luke's book. Let us pray and then read. Our gracious God and Father, we come now upon the occasion of the public reading of Scripture, which is your will, as stated so clearly by Paul to Timothy, and the preaching of your word, which is your will, also so stated by Paul to Timothy. And Lord, we thank you that these words, which are not the only ones of the matter in your word, but they are so very helpful to us for their clarity and the determination of our risen Lord Jesus to have in his church until the end of the age this gracious ministry of his word being read and his herald making it known to the people of God and all who would gather to hear it. Oh, gracious Lord Jesus, we come to you by your own spirit in union with you through faith, and we ask that it would please you by your intercessions, by your mercy, by your might to grant your voice to be heard. Gracious God and Father, we ask that your people would recognize the voice of your Son and that we would be renewed in our strength to come out of the world, to indeed escape the corruptions that are in the world with zeal, to believe on our Lord Jesus Christ, to indeed rest our souls upon him for everything and to walk in his way to be like him in the world until we see him face to face in the heavens. Help us, Lord, we pray. Give us even more than we know to ask. By the name of Jesus, amen. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? 
They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and that ends the reading for this morning. <clears throat> You have to end it somewhere, right? Well, in our text this morning, we do come to the event that results in the Apostle Paul being arrested and imprisoned by the Roman authorities, and we find that Paul stays in that condition all the way to the end of the Acts of the Apostles from this point forward. As far as we know, Paul never goes on another missionary journey after these events. He may never have been a free man again. In fact, the arrest that happens here may have only ended 
when Paul was executed in the city of Rome after a three or four year arrest. We don't know all the details of the end of Paul's life, but the church history tells us that his head was removed from his body by a sword in the city of Rome. But for our purposes this morning, how is it that our apostle, our beloved apostle Paul, got arrested? Well, just like Jesus, Paul got arrested because he had come into Jerusalem, the city that loves to kill the prophets, as Jesus said. An angry mob of Jews drove Paul, just as they did Jesus, into the hands of Roman authorities. But why did Paul come then to Jerusalem? Just like Jesus, Paul came to do good for his own people. Do you remember why he was going to Jerusalem? He says later in one of the five trials that follow his arrest here, yes, that's what's coming, five different trials. In one of them, he says, I came to Jerusalem to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Acts 24, 17. Paul's arrest is his imitation of Christ. He follows Jesus down the same road of suffering. But understand this, Paul was not striving, nor was he calculating to make this imitation happen himself. The Lord Jesus from his throne in heaven was making this imitation happen. It was the will of the risen Christ that Paul's credentials as a true apostle be confirmed through the, the apostles' imitation of Christ's own humiliation in Jerusalem and then subsequently at the hands of Roman authorities. Now, do you remember what our Lord Jesus said from his throne in heaven about Paul? When blasphemous, violent, hard-hearted Paul was being converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said from heaven, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Beloved, this is your calling also, to enter upon the imitation of Christ in suffering for his name, not as apostles, but as his beloved body. It is your great privilege to enter upon this via dolorosa, this way of suffering, and follow and imitate your Savior. It is your great privilege to do so, because all who do so testify that their true country, their true treasure, their true place of rest is outside the world that is under a curse and in the heavens where Jesus himself is now seated. Paul's call to salvation in Christ includes a call to suffer in this world with Christ. And this is how we should view all our own sufferings, unless, of course, we are suffering for doing evil. But if we suffer as a Christian, we ought to say, I am not suffering because I made a mistake or because I made a wrong turn 
or met the wrong person or made the wrong decision. I am suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. He is having me share in his sufferings to strengthen my hope in his eternal glory so that I would bear witness to his great worth as my risen Lord. I therefore will continue to worship him and serve him, trust him and obey him so all the world will see how his redeeming love now controls me and keeps me and summons me forward to the endurance of faith. So that's what's happening. That's a little touchback to last Sunday's message. Now let's go back to the details of Paul's arrest. Paul was not arrested for bringing alms to Jerusalem. He was not arrested for serving the poor, though he was doing that. He was not arrested for doing something good, but nor was he arrested for doing something bad. Paul was arrested, our text has shown us, because of rumors and lies and false statements and slander. That's why he's been arrested. A group of lawless religious men who claimed to be lovers of God's law They stirred up the violent passions of other lawless religious men. Now, that's a a clue to you, isn't it? It's a clue to the church of God that not all lawless men are outside the church. There are many lawless men in the visible church, men of wicked heart, clean on the outside, filthy on the inside, So these lawless religious men stir up other lawless religious men using lies about Paul having brought Trophimus into the temple. Well, this leads to Paul being dragged out of the temple, the gates being slammed shut, then beaten, then arrested by Roman authorities. Now, before we get into the lies, another question What was Paul doing in the temple in the first place? How did he become so exposed to personal risk? How did he get so close to his enemies where they could get their hands on him? Well, everything that happens to Paul in our reading gets put into motion during a meeting with church leaders in Jerusalem, a meeting described in verses 17 through 26. At this meeting is James. James is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. James is the author of the letter of James in your New Testament. This is James the Just, as he was known. After our Lord's resurrection, Jesus made a special visit and appeared to James. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Now James is a leader in the church at Jerusalem, which is largely a Jewish Christian church of many thousands, we learn. And what we are meant to see as this scene opens up to us is that James and the other elders of a largely Jewish Christian church, they are full of love full of respect, full of honor toward Paul. 
the apostle of the Gentiles. And the elders do not share these dark suspicions that the other Jewish Christians in Jerusalem apparently have toward Paul. Those suspicions are not shared by James, not shared by the elders in this room. There is just love and respect and mutual honor. We learn that a rumor has spread that Paul apparently was telling Jews who live out in Gentile cities to abandon Moses. That's the rumor being spread in the Jewish Christian church at Jerusalem. Paul's saying, abandon Moses, abandon the circumcision of your children, abandon Jewish customs. Now, like a dog with a bone, the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem are gnawing and gnawing on this rumor that Paul was going around the empire trying to tear down everything Jewish. But James and the elders did not share the suspicions of Paul. James and the elders knew about the rumors, but they resisted being mastered by the rumors. And beloved, this is such a pleasant thing to see. Church leaders healthy in the fruits of the Spirit. Church leaders thick in godliness. It is a blessing wherever we see church leaders who are resistant to slander and rumor, who will wait to find out the truth of a matter. And they know the truth, and we see it evidenced in their great warm reception of Paul and his entourage. They welcome Paul with open arms. They even rejoice, the text says, and they glorify God after Paul gives his account of all that God has done among the Gentiles. You see that in verse 20. And that's how the church should always talk about its ministries. What God has done. Not what we have done or I have done, but what God has done. But I want to I want you to focus upon this opening meeting in verse 17 through 20 for a moment. There's something very very special about this scene in 17 through 20. And we really must see it because it is radically different than the scene that unfolds later in the temple in verses 27 through 36. We are seeing two different kinds of religious men in our text this morning. The men that are with James and Paul and then the men who are down on the floor of the temple slamming the gate and dragging Paul out. In the place where you think there would be much righteousness, the great Jerusalem temple, there is much evil. And in the place where you think there would be evil, away from the temple, in some nondescript house, there is much righteousness. So in the gathering, 17 through 20, in the gathering between Paul and his entourage, and James and the elders of the Jerusalem church, there is a deep and profound fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a common faith and a common fruit in this gathering. Both are alive and at work among these men, and they are therefore thick 
with what James calls in James 3, the wisdom from above. So look at their common faith. What is it, this faith that gives them such an open and welcoming heart towards one another? It is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all kinds of sinners everywhere, Jewish sinners and Gentile sinners. By his work on the cross and his triumph over death, Jesus is reconciling all kinds of sinners to God by his own merits, by his own mercy, by his own might. And James and the elders of the Jewish Christian church rejoice to hear that Gentile sinners are flooding into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So these leaders all are sharing the joy and the energy and the unity that comes from a deep gospel fellowship. They are saturated in the grace of the gospel. Christ crucified for sinners is a light shining in their hearts. This is so foundational and fundamental to any fellowship and union in the church. If we do not have a cornerstone fellowship that Jesus Christ is calling all kinds of sinners to himself by his merits and not by the merits of the sinner, if we don't have that union, we have no union. Even if we're all walking through the exact same liturgy every Sunday morning in a city of one million, if every church had the same liturgy, but they were not united on the cornerstone that Jesus, by his own merits, is saving all kinds of sinners, black-collar sinners and white-collar sinners, if we are not united on that mighty grace, there is no union to be had. It's a sham. These leaders have that union, have that fellowship in the gospel of grace. Their chief joy, this is so key to what they say here, their chief joy and objective is not for Gentiles to become more like Jews. Nor is their chief joy and objective for Jews to become more and more like Gentiles. No, the chief joy and chief objective of Paul, James, and the elders is for all kinds of sinners everywhere to come to faith in Christ and be built up in that faith and be abounding in thanksgiving to God for the gift of that faith. And you see this in verse 25 when James and the elders reference the rules that they have sent out to the Gentile believers. None of the rules they have sent out to the Gentile churches require the Gentiles to start adopting the customs of the Jews. And we've come to this before in Acts 15. The rules are simply set forward as the foundation of the moral law. There shall be no idolatry and there should be no sexual immorality, which was their way of summarizing the Ten Commandments at the time. And if you want to go through the details of that, I recommend the sermon back in Acts 15 at the General Assembly Council, where they first established what the Gentiles must be obligated to do who are being saved by faith alone. So Paul, James, and the elders, they know that Jewish sinners have discovered in the gospel that the righteousness God requires is not by the law. 
It is by faith in Jesus Christ. All the leaders in this room know this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10.4. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 3.21, no law has been given that gives life to those who are dead in sin. Life is only given as a free gift, a promise kept by God to all who believe on Jesus Christ. So Paul, James, and these elders, they know this about Jewish sinners, and they know this about Gentile sinners. Gentile sinners who never had the law, who never had the customs of the Jews, who never had temples to Yahweh in their cities. Gentile sinners who never had the law have discovered in the same gospel that God is forgiving Gentiles for all their years of lawlessness and pagan idolatry. And he's moving them right up to the front of the line with Jewish sinners as true sons of the Most High God by the merits of Christ crucified. In Christ, God is adopting and receiving Gentile sinners as if they were his natural-born sons. This is what the blood of Christ has accomplished. Gentile believers are now true heirs of eternal life by the grace found in Jesus Christ. So this is the common faith of the men in this room. They all share a deep fellowship in the grace of the gospel. They are not so confused that they are unsure how much Jewish law needs to finish the work of Christ. The answer is none. They know it. And that's why they are filled with joy, energy, and as we will see in a minute, a willingness to sacrifice themselves and their reputations. But I also said there's something other than a common faith in this room. There is a common fruit. James, Paul, and the elders are ripe with love, ripe with patience, ripe with reasonableness and moderation and mutual affection, and boy, are they ripe with godly doubt. Yes, a godly doubt hangs on these men like banana trees, like grapevines, a godly doubt, because they are slow to believe the wicked reports and the false speeches about Paul that others in Jerusalem are so quick to believe. Instead of being easily pushed into the heavy traffic of suspicion, hardness, hatred, Toward Paul, these godly men are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Their cup is clean on both the outside and on the inside. You know, we have these little... Bible footnotes in the modern translations of the Bible, these cross-references, I really think somebody should add Acts 21, 17 through 20. 
next to Galatians 5.22, where the list of the fruit of the Spirit are written out. Because you are seeing a living embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit in the elders and James and Paul in this meeting. They are not carried away by their passions. They do not lack self-control. And as you will see in their plan that they come up with, they are ripe with much love. Why are these fruits ripe in these men? Because they belong to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says right after he lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. These fruits are ripe in these men because they belong to Jesus Christ and therefore have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Christ has not only removed sin's penalty from them, Christ has broken sin's dominion over them. They are now free, these men, to give themselves in deeds of mercy instead of demand and demand and demand that others give to them. The exaltation of self has been dethroned in these men because they are at the foot of the cross. Which brings us to their remarkable plan to heal and to unite the Jewish church. And beloved, that's what this plan is about. This plan, at its very core, is to heal and unite the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem that's been filled up with suspicion against one of the leading apostles of God, Paul. James is united with Paul. He can't get more united with him. The elders in the room are united with Paul. They can't get more united. But thousands of believing Jews in Jerusalem have a dark shadow of suspicion in their hearts towards Christ's servant, Paul. So according to James and the elders, these many Jewish Christians remain zealous for the law. You see that in verse 20. Which means they truly regard Christ as their only redeemer. They are believers. They truly regard Christ as their only hope with God. They do not accept the heresy which says sinners are justified by the works of the law. They reject that rightly. They are justified by faith in Christ alone these many thousands of believers in Jerusalem. But these Jewish Christians remain very loyal to the Jewish ceremonial law, keeping dietary laws, keeping festivals, keeping special days, even taking vows, as we see in our text, and making offerings at the temple. These Jewish Christians are just like those that Paul speaks of in Romans 14. In Romans 14, Paul says there are Christians in the church, presumably Jews, who are weak in faith, he says. They are anxious, anxious to assure themselves of their salvation by keeping certain aspects of the ceremonial law. In this way, we could say they are like, like Christians who might never allow themselves to touch a drop of alcohol. 
They know not drinking is not what saves them from their sin. They know that. They know Christ alone only saves, but they are anxious. They are concerned that drinking too much might mean that their faith is false or might mean that their faith is weak. So they don't touch the stuff at all. Their conscience doesn't allow them to drink. That is a very fitting illustration of what is going on on a large scale among Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, in that milieu, it is very easy for the abstainers to look down upon the partakers, right? And the partakers to look down upon the abstainers. This mutual resentment is very easy to produce with the wrong words and the wrong rumor. Well, in coming to Jerusalem, Paul is coming into a church situation quite ripe for resentment, and he is the target of it. But it is even worse for Paul, because in his case, there's a rumor going around that Paul is telling other Jews to forsake Moses and not circumcise their children. These are rumors. Verse 21 says, the Jews have been told this. They haven't heard this themselves. They have been told this. There's a bunch of chatterboxes out there sowing the rumor weed. Sorry, reference to Veggie Tales. Now, these rumors were false. Paul never urged anyone to forsake Moses. And though he was opposed to anyone who claimed circumcision as necessary for salvation, Paul never told Jewish fathers that they are forbidden to circumcise their sons. But yes, Paul did speak fiercely against anyone who claimed circumcision was an obligation for salvation. He says in Galatians 5.2, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's speaking to those who think circumcision is an obligation to complete their salvation. But Paul did not want anyone to think that uncircumcision was necessary either. And so he says in Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We know Paul did not forbid circumcision in every case because we learned in Acts 16 that he himself took Timothy and had him circumcised. So it would be easier for he and Timothy to go into Jewish precincts within Gentile cities and speak of the gospel. So think about this situation. False rumors are spreading about, spreading about Paul all through the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. And what is Paul going to do? Well, if you know his Savior, you already know the answer. Cross and humiliation. But let's back up a second. Let's go back into the realm of the natural human instinct that prevails among sinful men and women. What is Paul going to do? Get angry? Is he going to pack up and leave Jerusalem? Is he going to demand a trial? Bring my accusers on. Have them say it to my face. Come on. What is he going to do? 
Or is Paul going to begin his descent? Like his master, like his savior, is Paul going to descend into servitude and humiliation in order to best serve the interest of God? Beloved, what liberties, what liberties would you be willing to forfeit? What accommodations would you be willing to make to dispel false rumors going around about you? Would you just want to give out knuckle sandwiches to answer the rumors? Or would you do what you see here with the church, with its leaders, its Christ-centered men? What do they do? They decide to serve those who are confused in a way that they are persuaded will be the best way to demonstrate that Paul is okay in participating in some aspects of the ceremonial law and that he's not in Jerusalem to punch everybody in the mouth with the most provocative things he can say, that he would actually truly be willing to go down and partake in a temple offering and pay for the animal sacrifices of these four men. Now, we might say, I am not going to dignify these rumors by taking steps to disprove them. Paul is not so worldly wise as us. He will take whatever steps are necessary to disprove the rumors without scolding those who are in the confusion of this suspicion. Why would Paul do this? Well, you already know the answer, don't you? Because he is united to a Savior who did this. A Savior who on the cross, when he was finishing his final breaths, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul has learned from the same place Stephen the deacon learned. He has learned at the foot of the cross that the way forward is the way down, the way of servitude and humiliation. You know, we might, if we were in that room, might want to get out a whiteboard and start drawing out in columns all the possible outcomes that could befall us if we go forward with this plan. Well, this group of people will misunderstand and think we're doing this. This group of people will misunderstand and think Paul's doing this. This group will call him a hypocrite. This group will call him a virtue signaler. Well, we got to get right. There's none of that in our text. Even if some guy in the back of this room named John wanted to do it, it never gets into the text of the scripture. Why? Because the pragmatic questions of what could happen are not ruling the leaders of the church. You know what is ruling them? That which is always the wisdom and the power of God. What is the wisdom and the power of God always? The cross, suffering, humiliation, becoming smaller to serve people, setting aside our rights to help people, being humiliated so that somebody might learn the truth. Paul doesn't have to hear all the possible outcomes. He only has to know, well, if I put my life on a path of descent, that's where God is most pleased. Because look what he did himself when he came in human likeness 
and went down to the very belly of the earth for our sins. Paul knows it's the right thing to do without having to think twice about it. And so he submits to his brethren, James and the elders, and he executes the plan, and it fails. At least fails on one account. Now, Matthew Henry suggests that maybe it didn't fail, and he admits he's being speculative. He says maybe this plan didn't fail at all. Maybe when the Jewish Christians saw the rage of unbelieving Jews in the city against Paul, they saw more clearly the foulness of the law in the hearts of unregenerate men. That's Henry's suggestion. But it fails on this account. Paul gets arrested. Paul is imprisoned. It fails if your only standard in life is to not be in jail. But if your standard in life is to walk in the cruciform way of your master, there's no failure here. This is exactly what the prophets said would happen when Paul would go to Jerusalem. They would bind him, and he would be taken, just like his master. Why is Paul able to do this? F.F. Bruce a fine theologian and New Testament scholar, now deceased, said this of Paul, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. In other words, Paul's freedom from the law, which he preached generously, is not going to become a new law. His freedom is not going to become a new law by which he must always stand apart and opposed to the weak. No, he is not in bondage to his own emancipation. He can now become like a Jew to win the Jews and like a Greek to win the Greeks. He can become small wherever he needs to to win something big which is the message of the gospel. And we see this in Paul's own teaching in Romans 14, where he is actually working out in much detail how the church of Jesus Christ must handle others in her midst whose consciences are anxious, anxious that they must not participate in certain things. I must not watch rated R movies. I must not drink wine. I must not go to that place. Paul says in Romans 14.3, Let not the one who eats despise the one despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then a few verses later he says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. But in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we have learned that what makes peace is a cross. And so for us, what makes peace is you and I becoming smaller, becoming servants, making accommodations for one another so that all of us see that we have been welcomed together fully to God through Jesus Christ. No one is more welcome than the other simply because of these scruples we might have that are not according to divine law. So Paul willingly... Paul cheerfully, 
accepts the plan. In fact, Paul submits to other church leaders, and he goes and he agrees to participate publicly in the fulfillment of a Jewish vow and purification rite. There are these four men, Jewish Christians, who had taken a Nazarite vow, and you can read about that in number six for homework if you like, a vow of special separation unto God. That's what the word Nazarite means. And when the days of their vows are complete, they are to bring an animal offering to a priest at the temple in Jerusalem. Now Paul will join them. He will purify himself and he will pay for whatever animals are necessary to bring about the offering at the end of the vow's term. And so they all go down to the temple, they go down to the priest, where he's probably sitting at some kind of table, taking notes, and they schedule their planned offering and pay for the animals ahead of time. And everything goes sideways. And this is where we can quickly go over what happens in verse 27 through 36. Verse 27 is the big clue. It says in verse 27 that the Jews from Asia recognized Paul. The Jews from Asia, not Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. These are Jews on a Pentecostal pilgrimage who have come to Jerusalem for the same feast day that Paul has come. And they recognize Paul because they have seen him before in the cities where they live the cities in Asia, which are Ephesus, Thessalonica, Colossae. These are probably Jews from the city of Asia, where Paul, remember, lived for several years teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul became a known quantity there because he was a Jew who had been kicked out of the synagogue in Ephesus. And that's where he met Trophimus, and now the Jews who are there from Asia recognize Paul wandering through the streets of the city with a Greek named Trophimus, and they supposed, that's the key word, they supposed that Paul had taken Trophimus the Greek into the temple and defiled the place. Because no uncircumcised Greek was allowed in the inner courts of the temple. And what do they do with what they have supposed? They easily persuade others to suppose it with them. And in a matter of moments, they have a mob who is full of violence, ready to kill Paul. But don't overlook who is the mob. The mob are men who are proclaiming that they love the law of God and that all their anger and rage directed against Paul is because he is defiling the honor of God. He is transgressing the law by bringing a Greek into the temple. But Paul did not bring a Greek into the temple. And he will make that clear in his later trials that are coming in the final chapters. They suppose that he did. So these men who claim to be lovers of the law are actually filled with wicked hearts because they are not able 
to see their own supposings and their creating of false rumors and false statements and wicked speeches and lies against Paul. They can't see that they are transgressing the law, even as they are shouting how much they are fighting for the honor of the law. Do you see it? Beloved, this is what the law is in the heart of unregenerate men. It leads us into deeper hostility. The people most intense about keeping the law are the people most controlled by passions of anger and hatred. Why? Because law intensity blinds you to your own sin. You are always thinking about how you are doing better than some other guy when law intensity is the force in your life. You are always mad about people who are not doing it as well as you. And that turns into a festering rage and hostility towards your neighbors, even those under your own roof. Law people are obsessed with what other people are doing wrong instead of what they are doing wrong. And you see it in these men. They can't even see that they are trafficking in a supposition and turning it into a rumor to destroy a man who didn't do what they say he did. But beloved, there's another kind of intensity that does not blind you to your sin. It is cross-intensity cross intensity the cross always the cross always allows you to see your sin and not fall into despair because on the cross you not only have this great fierce judgment of god against your sin but you have this great display of his love for sinners for it is jesus on that cross John Bunyan had a little line in a poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The men in Jerusalem who seem to be most zealous for the law have no power to keep it. They become rumor mongers and are about to destroy an innocent man. They have no power from the law to keep it. The power to keep the law comes from the indwelling Christ when he circumcises our heart and takes up residence within us by his own life through the Spirit. And he begins to persuade us that the way of descent is the way of holiness. Ralph Erskine also had a little poem about the law that some say that Bunyan was borrowing from. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Beloved, who has wings in our passage today? No, it's not because they made the wings. But who are these winged men in our text? Paul, James, and the elders of the Jerusalem church. 
They have wings because they are united to Christ and saturated in the gospel. They see that the true purpose of their life is to lay it down and serve, not create violent mobs. So we have learned from this opening scene of what becomes multiple chapters and five trials, we have learned from this opening scene that those who are loudest about their love for the law have no power to keep it. And they want to silence the one man who wants to preach Christ in the temple of Jerusalem. And did you hear that in the text? They drag Paul out and they slam the gate. Some commentators on the book of Acts suggest that that was the public act of the Jews saying, no gospel here, no Christ crucified here. We will make our own way of salvation through the law. And in less than two decades later, that city and that temple were torn down to the ground by the Romans under the direction of the heavenly Christ. But our calling is to be like the men who are like Jesus Christ, to be saturated ourselves with the gospel of grace, that we have nothing to boast in but Christ. And it is that boast that will straighten our lives out of lawlessness into that which is holy and true. And we will be glad in it. And we will give ourselves to others as a testimony that we are indeed filled with he who kept the law perfectly, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let us pray. Father, bless your people in the hearing of your word today. We pray, O God, that we would indeed learn from our elders as we have seen them before us stoop and serve and descend to the road of suffering and humiliation to assist and help the church. May we all learn from them, from James and from Paul and the many unnamed elders in that room. May we learn that it isn't they who figured all this out and and slowly climbed their way up into these mighty graces. But it is you, O God, who came to them, who put your spirit upon them. And we are so encouraged by this that we ask for you to put that spirit upon us in great measure. We pray that it would please you to give Apple Valley Presbyterian Church a deep gospel saturation, that we would be so persuaded that the wisdom and power at the very foundation of all reality is Christ crucified for sinners, and that we ourselves would always be equipped, therefore, to judge whether we are reaching for the wisdom and power of men, even religious men boasting in the law, or are we reaching for the wisdom and power of the cross? Oh, Father, visit us with that same grace that you visited them, and may it fill us up, even should it cause us great suffering. 
We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.